This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So our, um, our topic for tonight is titled Unfolding in Emptiness, or you could also call this Emptying, um, either one, uh, as you like. So we're, we're just going to do a, a kind of quick overview of some of the facets of the unfolding of emptiness through our Dharma path. Uh, we could talk all night and probably a whole weekend uh, just on this topic, but we're going to kind of condense it and and hit some of the high points. Um, we're going to offer two guided meditations, one at the beginning, and then I'll have a Dharma talk, and then we'll do another guided meditation toward the end. And in the last part of the evening, I want to allow plenty of time for comments, questions, and so on for you all to join in uh, discussion. And also to say that I'm not used to teaching at night in this room that I'm in my office. I'm not quite sure how the lighting will be. Uh, I've got as many lights on as I can find, but you know, if we have to call the game on account of darkness, well, that's just one of the things that happens in, in the springtime. So we'll see how it goes. At least you can hear me um, if it gets dark. Okay, so let's begin with uh, a meditation. So I'll ask you all to just sit as you would for your own meditations. And that means to sit comfortably in a relaxed way, but also feel an uprightness in your body so that the spine is reasonably straight. You feel some erectness through the upper part of the body. And that brings in a sense of alertness and energy. At the same time, you can let your weight drop into the sitting base. Know that the earth holds you and supports you and you can rest there. And if you feel comfortable in your sitting posture, you can let your eyes gently close. If you're not comfortable having your eyes closed, you're welcome to keep them open. And take as your first meditation focus, the body in the sitting posture. So you have the sense that your awareness pervades the whole body. That you could direct your attention anywhere in the body and feel sensations or an absence of sensation in that part of the body. And you can just check through the head, the shoulders and arms, the back, the chest and belly, the hips, and the legs. Awareness is found throughout the body. And you can notice either sensation or a lack of anywhere you'd like to direct the attention. Sometimes we like to take the whole body posture as an anchor or a focus in mindfulness practice. So in this, we see if we can kind of take in the whole body posture with one look. We may not get it all, and that's fine. But have a sense that the awareness can spread out a bit and take in 
a good part of the body in sitting. And so you can rest with your attention to some degree on the whole body posture. And as you're connecting with the body and sitting, begin to notice what happens when you breathe. Every time you breathe in, certain sensations arise in the body. Every time you breathe out, other sensations happen. So maintaining this overall awareness of the body and sitting and just feeling the sensations that come from breathing in and breathing out. You don't have to try to alter the breath to make it long or short or deep or shallow. Just breathe naturally and feel the sensations that come. Now, from time to time, you may lose touch with the sensations of breathing because the attention may get captured by a thought or a train of thoughts. This is natural, as you know, can happen often in meditation practice. And the attention may go into a thought for a few seconds or a quarter of a minute, or a few minutes. But at some point, the attention will return to the present moment. And again, you can feel the body and breathing. So normally in Vipassana instructions, we just say, when the attention returns to the present moment, just notice that a thought was there, don't judge it, and let the attention return to feel the body and breath. But in this meditation, I want to ask you to do a little bit of investigation with the thought that you've just noticed. You've returned to the present moment, a thought has just taken place, or perhaps a train of thinking, so I'd like to ask you to take a quick look at the content of that thought to see what it was about. And once you've noticed the content and have a sense of what it was about, then return the attention to the body and breath. So please practice in this way for the next several minutes. So you get the opportunity to look at a few thoughts that are arising and taking the attention.
So feeling the breath in the whole body. And when you notice that a thought has taken the attention for a while, just investigating to find what was that thought about? And now for the last couple of minutes of the sitting, I'll ask you to reflect a little bit. Having noticed the content of a number of thoughts, I wanna ask you to investigate one more thing. Was there a common thread to those thoughts? Any common theme that you might identify that those thoughts share? Take just a minute to review the thoughts you noticed and see anything that kind of links them up.
So I don't know how clear that was. That was a meditation bell. People have told me that it doesn't come across very well in, in Zoom, but just in case the meditation bell has rung. So you can open your eyes and uh, return to the group. And I'll pick up the Dharma talk. I'm gonna come back to the questions that I asked you to investigate. But I wanna open now with uh, the theme of the evening. So we're talking about unfolding and emptiness. We should talk a little bit about what this word means. The basic meaning of emptiness, which many of you already know, is that everything in our experience is not solid or substantial, even though it might appear that way. And that applies to the events of our inner experience, as well as the objects of the world in our outer experience. This sounds simple, but there are actually a lot of assumptions embedded in this statement and the full kind of unpacking of the implications of this can take uh, quite a bit of practice. But something to say really clearly up front is emptiness in the Buddhist context is not a blank or a vacancy or a nothingness or nihilism or leading to despair or an emotional state of deadness. It's not any of those things with negative connotations. You know, I think the word is provocative for us and it sort of forces us to go, what is the Buddha talking about here? But I think it was probably provocative in his day as well, maybe even more provocative um, because there were so many philosophical systems floating around that tried to explain in, in a lot of concepts the way the world worked. So it's a, it's a term that makes us sit up and question, that makes us wonder a little bit. But please throw out the idea that it's gonna lead somewhere depressing because that's not where we're headed. Emptiness when understood in our experience is an insight that enriches life. So much so that people say that the understanding of emptiness really leads them to feel the fullness of the life they have. So I think that's a good way to hold it. Emptiness leads into a feeling of fullness. Really the aim is for us to free our hearts and minds. It's not about some intellectual theory or a grand philosophical notion. It's a very practical tool that is designed for us to free ourselves. This is kind of brought home to me. I was watching a DVD uh, that I've had for a while, a series of teachings that uh, the Dalai Lama gave in Tucson a few years back on a chapter in Shantideva, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It was a chapter on wisdom. And so he started off uh, remarking that he'd been in Tucson 13 years prior to the current visit where the filming was being done. And that was a nice way to reconnect with his audience because he'd probably met a number of them before. And then he said, yes, uh, 13, since 13 years ago, oh, I haven't made much progress. And everybody laughed because you don't think that the Dalai Lama needs to make much progress, but he still practices in a very dedicated way and is still committed to his own uh, full awakening. So, you know, it was wonderful to kind of hear his humility and his lightness around that. But then he went on, but he said, what little progress I have made has come from a deepening understanding of my bodhisattva vow and further insights into emptiness. That's the Dalai Lama, you know, over the past 13 years, more insights into emptiness but he's still learning and growing and developing from this area. So, you know, we're not gonna get it all one night or in one retreat, but it's a very rich and, and full kind of teaching. In fact, one of the things that I wanted to say tonight, and the reason I put the title of the talk the way I did, 
is that the entire path that we're on can be understood as a deepening in emptiness. When we understand it correctly, it is emptiness that takes us from the beginning to the middle and to the end, to liberation. Even Nibbana is described as the supreme emptiness. So it is a thread that we can follow all along the course of our own journey of awakening. There are two primary meanings within the whole Buddhist tradition of the term, and those can be summed up as emptiness of self and the emptiness of sense phenomena. So this is where I wanna come back to the first meditation that we did this evening. When you looked at the thoughts that came and took you away from the present moment briefly or for a while, did you find a common theme? And I, we don't really have time right now to go into your report on that. But what I find when I look closely at my thoughts in this way is that the thoughts that take me away are all about me. They're all about myself in one form or another. They're about I, me, and mine. Those are the thoughts that grab me. Those are the thoughts that uh, claim my attention. And those are thoughts around areas where I've invested energy in my life. Those are things that I care about because I have some self-interest about them. And they show different facets. You know, it could be about my work. It could be about my relationship. It could be about my health. It could be about my family. It could be about my finances. It could be about my friends. But they are all areas that are near and dear to me. That's what takes me away from the present moment. I don't find myself waking up in the middle of a long string of thoughts about how to solve the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. That's not what's grabbing me. It's self-centered thinking and the emotions that, that go along with that. And so in, in, you know, in this way, you kind of come to see that the self is kind of like the North Star of our life. It's that point in the heaven that everything else revolves around. And this North Star then is central to the way we think and feel and view ourselves and life and the world. And then the next thing that's interesting to look at, although we didn't get into this investigation this evening is, did any of the thoughts go on for a while? Sometimes in meditation, you know, there'll be a thought and you're just gone for a few seconds and then right back in the present moment, body, breath, sounds, whatever. But sometimes a train comes along that seems very interesting. We hop on the train, go down the tracks, you know, and it could be half a minute, it could be a minute, it could be 15 minutes before we come back and notice, oh, here's the body and here's breath. So these long thought excursions have a special name in the Buddha's teachings. These are called proliferations. And you get the sense of how one builds upon the next, builds upon the next, and you're off on a, you're off on a long journey of mental proliferation. The Pali term for this is, is quite good. It's papancha. And it has that kind of punchy quality to it. Papancha means proliferation. And the commentaries, uh, the Buddha didn't say this, but the commentaries identify three primary forces that drive proliferation. And it's very interesting to start tuning into the forces as well that lead us on these thought trains, see if they line up with this traditional explanation. It's said that the thought trains are driven in three ways, by craving, by views, and by conceit. In Pali, this is tanha, ditti, and mana. Mana's uh, or conceit is not as commonly spoken of, but it basically means the belief I am or the sense I am. Mana is the deep tendency of mind to try to locate ourselves somehow, somewhere. 
So see if your thoughts could be summed up. I like to sum these up as I want, I think, and I am. You know, things I want in the world, views and opinions that I hold that kind of define me, or I am in relation to someone or something else. And this is often our role in society, in our family, or in our work. I want, I think, I am. This is a lot of what makes up our proliferations. And they're all just different expressions of self. So what's the problem? Well, as you know, these selfing thoughts can lead into a lot of suffering. They're often bound up with reactive emotions of greed or aversion or confusion. These are the forces that drive us. This is, these are the expressions of tanha, of craving, really. This is again from the Dalai Lama. One of the most important insights in Buddhism comes from what is known as the understanding of emptiness. At its heart is the deep recognition that there is a fundamental disparity between the way we perceive the world, including our own experience in it, and the way things actually are. This is sobering. The disparity between the way we perceive the world and the actuality of the world. In this gap is where suffering is born. So the whole point of our meditation practice, the whole point of insight meditation is for us to see things the way they actually are. This is the meaning of Vipassana because it said that when we see things the way they are, we come to peace, we come to freedom and we live with wisdom. This is why we meditate. So emptiness is a pointer to that gap between how we think things are and the way things actually are. You probably know that for many years of his life, the last 25 years of his life, the Buddha was um, attended by his cousin Ananda, who was one of the sweetest figures in the whole Pali Canon. Uh, he cared very much for the Buddha and he took a lot of care of all the visitors who came to, to see the Buddha. And because they spent so much time together, Ananda had the chance to ask all the Dharma questions that he wanted. So at one point he came to the Buddha and he said, um, uh, blessed one, it is said, empty is the world, empty is the world. What does this mean? And the Buddha replied, the world is empty because it's empty of a self or what belongs to a self. The world is empty of a self. That's a challenging statement. There's no basis in reality for this belief in self. But, but, but wait, that's our North Star. Everything in life revolves around self. And you're telling me there's no basis for it? So this is the, really the same as the Buddha's teaching on not self or anatta, which I'm sure you heard in, in many Dharma talks um, before. So in this first part, emptiness of self is equivalent to the teaching on not-self or anatta. But if that's the case, what does the Buddha mean by the world? What is empty of self? This is important to clarify. So this is described in a, a discourse called the Discourse on Totality, where the Buddha says bhikkhus, which means for us practitioners, we're all bhikkhus if we're sincere in practice. What is the totality of things? Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of things. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and sensations, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality of things would not be speaking of something they knew about. So what the Buddha is describing here is our own direct experience. 
of the six senses, the five physical senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind door, mind objects, which are basically thoughts and emotions, states of mind. This is the totality of things. This is quite a lovely statement, especially from a great spiritual teacher, because we're not pointing to some abstract notion or some remote ideal like union with Brahman. The Buddha is directing us to look at our immediate experience. This is really what sets the stage for our meditation practice, for mindfulness practice, because mindfulness is to become aware of our direct experience of these six kinds of sense happenings. As Joseph Goldstein likes to say, there are only ever six things going on. So this is the field that we need to get really familiar with, become free in. So as we explore these six kinds of sense happenings with our mindful attention, one of the things we ask early on is, are these things permanent or impermanent? Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mind objects. Have any of them ever lasted for you? No, they're all impermanent. What's missing from this list? The self. There's no self in this description of our experience. And what do we understand as an assumption about the self? There are several hidden assumptions and I won't go into all of them tonight. I do talk about them in the book, but one of the key ones is continuity. We think the self is ongoing in some way has been the same since we were in grade school up until today and will be the same until we die. But none of the facets of our experience at the senses meet that criterion. And that's how we know something's off in our concept of the self. Well, how, how do we know that we have this assumption of continuity? Because we're worried about dying. We think it is this self that is going to meet death one day. If we thought someone else was dying, we wouldn't be as worried. But we think I'm going to die and therefore we worry. So Vipassana practice or mindfulness practice in the Eightfold Path takes this view of totality, the six senses as our field of practice. And we develop skill in paying attention to all these things as they arise and as they pass away, as they arise and as they pass away. So immediately we are coming out of the field of mental proliferation and into the reality of sense experience. This is a big deal. We're retraining the mind not to get lost in the broad, expansive fields of papancha. We are training the mind to stick with the reality of the six senses instead. Go in the field of papancha and we increase, I want, I think, I am. Those just, the self just proliferates in that field. Come into reality and that selfing gets starved. We don't give it the attention that we had been giving it that feeds the sense of self. Not only that, but when we start to examine the nature of these sense appearances, we find something else that's interesting. Um, a few years ago, I was down in your neck of the woods and the Dalai Lama was giving a series of talks, a few days of talks at Shoreline Amphitheater. I don't know if any of you were there, but it was a, a lovely occasion. It, it might've been in May because it was sunny, but it was not baking hot. And he was up on the big stage up front. And if you know the amphitheater, there are lots of uh, rows of seats in a semicircle and then a big grassy lawn. So you could either sit in a chair or go back and, and uh, put a blanket out on the lawn. And 
you know, the big speakers that, that normally would be used to blast the Grateful Dead back in those days um, were, were full of the Dalai Lama's uh, voice. So it was just a delightful setting to listen to him in. And he was talking on the Heart Sutra, which is all about emptiness. One of the key texts in the Mahayana, it's all about emptiness. And the theme that he was on was dukkha and how we get led into suffering. And he explained there are these three kinds of dukkha and this comes straight out of the, the Pali Canon. He said, there's dukkha dukkha, which is the straight form of suffering, painful experience of body and mind. There's viparinama dukkha, which is the pain of alternation. That means something goes along that's pleasant for a while, but then it changes, it alternates and becomes neutral or unpleasant. In any case, we lose the pleasure of it. And then he said, there's the unsatisfactoriness of condition phenomena, which is called Sankara Dukkha. And there he explained, the problem is not that impermanence simply means that something goes on for a while and then changes or goes away. When we look into the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena, what we see is that every appearance at a sense door is arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing, moment after moment after moment. This takes us into the field of the emptiness of phenomena. All the phenomena that the Buddha described as being in reality, as being in totality, none of them last more than momentarily. And this is something that we discover through our practice of uh, Vipassana, through insight meditation, as the concentration deepens. This is seen quite clearly. So in a way, this explains this aspect of Sankara Dukkha explains the difference between just seeing impermanence and seeing emptiness. When we recognize impermanence, we know that nothing is really going to last forever. But some things seem like they last quite a long time, like you know the smell of the new car that we've had for, for three months already, or a new relationship that we're really quite into might last three months. But Sankara Dukkha, shows that nothing is lasting in a substantial way for more than a moment. So both seeing into impermanence and seeing into emptiness are taught for the same reason. It's to persuade us not to hang on. Because if we're hanging on to the pleasant, it's gonna hurt when it goes. So impermanence says it's going to change. What emptiness shows in Sankara Dukkha is there's nothing solid there to hang on to in the first place. Every appearance is truly insubstantial and therefore ungraspable. And in many cases, all that we can hang on to is a memory to which we've given a name. We call it a good meditation or we call it my partner or something. Once we've given it a name, then we can hang on to the name and the memory. But the thing itself keeps changing, keeps changing as we, as we look at it. So as we see into impermanence, it does wear away the sense of self. It reduces clinging and clinging is what gives rise to a sense of self. So the Buddha put it this way, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sense desire, it eliminates all ignorance, and it uproots all conceit of I am. This is a powerful statement about seeing impermanence, one of the three characteristics. It leads to a very full um, experience of the Dhamma. So as we come into the present moment, we're more in touch with reality. Self thing is getting starved. So the self starts to be reduced just through our normal mindfulness practice. The self starts to be reduced. We are more in touch with reality. There is less 
giving rise to papancha of I want, I think, I am. And we are less inclined to cling because we see that nothing is substantial enough to cling to. So all these things go on in our practice. And of course, these insights take, take quite some time. They take years to develop and, and come to fruition, but they do come. And so the self exerts less, I would say, gravitational pull. The gravitational pull of the self is basically felt as a contraction. The self is trying to hold on, to solidify, to cling to, um, to bring things in. And in that there's a narrowing, there's a narrowing of focus to the desired objects, to draw them in and hold on to them. And that, that shrinks our being somewhat. As we let go, there's a widening that happens. There's a relaxation in the body and a greater ease. And with that, the mind sort of spreads more outward. There's an opening, there's a widening. And then at some times the, the self can even temporarily go away. You might know this poem by Li Paul, the Chinese poet. The birds have vanished down the sky. Now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. So these moments come in meditation when the self temporarily just um, isn't present, may not be present at all for a period of time in our meditation or in, in nature, perhaps. There may even be an awakening, an awakening to our deepest nature. Do either of those things always uproot the self formations completely? No. The selfing activities are deeply conditioned and they don't stop so easily, even though they've been seen through, even though we've understood there's no actual self there. This is from a Korean Zen teacher named uh, Shanul. Although one has awakened to one's deepest nature, the beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. And so one must continue to cultivate while relying on this awakening. Through this gradual permeation, one's endeavors reach completion. Hence it is called gradual cultivation. So what Chanul is pointing to here is a, is a kind of intermediate stage on the path, isn't it? We've reached some understandings. We've seen through the self, there may even have been a partial awakening. And yet the activities of the self are still going on. We can see them. We know that they're not leading in the right direction. You know, they're just more, I want, I think I am, but they're compulsive. We can't stop them so easily. So at this point, um, we might want to start reflecting on these patterns that I would call our personality. We'd say our personality consists of our habitual ways of thinking, feeling, speaking, and acting. This is how we come to know somebody. We observe them, we notice, they tell us how they think and feel, we observe how they speak and act, and we see ourselves in the same way. We know well how we think and feel, and we can observe our speech and actions. So we get a sense of our personality shaped in a certain way. Each person has their own kind of unique combination of mental traits that lead to these, um, these actions. It's consistent to some extent, right? You kind of know your friend is going to be a certain way. You kind of know you're going to be a certain way, you know, reacting to different circumstances, 
but it's within uh, some variety within certain bounds. There's a consistency to personality, even as we understand there's no self there. There's no solid core at the middle. If there were, we couldn't be liberated. We couldn't be free. That solid core would get stuck and would block the true liberation, the uprooting of all ignorance, the ending of the conceit I am. There's no solid core, so the personality is, is really malleable. And yet, as we observe, even from this partly awakened place, we see the same habit patterns repeating again and again and again. And so this can, this can be frustrating. You know, we've seen the emptiness of self, we've seen the emptiness of phenomena, and yet the grasping continues. And if we look more closely, the habits of greed continue. The habits of aversion continue. The habits of fear continue, or the habits of confusion. We all have different varieties of these, but they are all, you know, variations on the theme of the kilesas of greed, aversion, and delusion. And they are volitional. They are not just random. They are built on things that we want, or views, or sense of self. So we have generated these patterns ourselves. They are volitionally formed. As the Buddha says, whatever a person frequently thinks or ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So we could call these our volitional formations. It's a synonym for our personality. Well, interestingly enough, volitional formations is the name the translators give to the fourth aggregate which is sankharas, states of mind that are put together from these impulses, greed, aversion, and delusion. So we start to understand that this is a deeply conditioned part of our approach to the world, deeply conditioned way that we see ourselves and others we may have come into meditation practice hoping that there would be a quick resolution, a speedy resolution of this desire force or this angry force or this fearful force or this confusion that leads us into suffering. But it's not so quick. Even with understanding as we do, it's not so quick. So at this stage, we really need to trust that the Dharma is doing its work. Sometimes in this stage, people see, oh, I still have the same conditioned responses to things. I still get anxious. I still get frightened. I still have so much wanting or ambition or you know, craving for control or something like that. Am I not going anywhere? Is the path really not helping? But the path is helping. The path is working. Because one of the things that I can almost guarantee is happening is that the intensity of those conditioned reactions is decreasing. And perhaps even the frequency with which they come is decreasing. But sometimes we don't step back and take a look at that. We just see, oh, I still have anxiety. The anxiety isn't going away. Oh, the practice isn't working. Never, never, gonna, never gonna lead to freedom. This is where we have to renew our trust in the Dharma. We have to trust the process. Nagarjuna was this brilliant author around 100, 150 uh, of the common era. Uh, one of the early teachers in the school that later became the Mahayana. And his central work is all about emptiness. It called root uh, verses on the middle way, available in a number of English translations. It's really a wonderful book 
to deepen one's understanding of emptiness. Uh, if the Buddha was the king of emptiness, Nagarjuna is the prince in our tradition. So a very interesting uh, line to study. One of the things Nagarjuna says is that emptiness stops papancha. Emptiness stops papancha. So the more we penetrate the truth of emptiness, both on the level of self and on the level of phenomena, it undercuts this tendency to run off into, I want, I think I am. It cuts through and can eventually halt that string of papancha that it gets us involved in so much selfing and the attendant suffering. We have to trust in that. The Buddha put it this way. When a carpenter looks at the handle of their ax, they see the impression of their fingers and thumb, but they don't know so much of the ax handle has been worn away today, so much yesterday, so much earlier. But when it has worn away, the knowledge occurs to them that it has worn away. So we don't know how much of the ax handle is still to go or how much has been gone from yesterday or the day before, but we do know that it is wearing away. And this is what we have to trust in. So basically what is happening is that emptiness and our, our attention are giving ourselves to the present moment, starving those, those self generations of papancha is wearing away the confusion, the kalesis, the greed, and the aversion. All those karmic patterns, we call them karmic patterns because they spring from our own volition. Volition, as you probably know, is at the heart of karma. It is whether our intention in an action is wholesome or unwholesome that determines the weight in the Buddha's view of that, of that experience, of that action. So mindfulness is constantly cutting through our karmic formations. And that's why Nagarjuna went on to say, karma is not abandoned by letting go, but by meditation. So we don't just decide, I'm gonna let go of this volitional pattern. I'm gonna get rid of this karmic pattern and formation. It doesn't work that way. Karma is abandoned by seeing it clearly in meditation and not buying into it. This is the way. Now, mindfulness practice will go there, but I wanna suggest another meditation, and it could be possibly two, but maybe we'll just do one, that lends itself, I think, really well for this stage of the unfolding and emptiness. One has seen through the reality of self. One has seen the insubstantiality of sense appearances. One doesn't want to go on clinging, and yet the habits still keep arising. So let's explore a meditation that the Buddha uh, might call abiding in emptiness. This is based on a discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya, number 121, the, the lesser discourse on emptiness. And see, see how it fits and, and if it's something that appeals to you. So again, please uh, take a comfortable meditation posture. We'll just do this for about 10 minutes. And then this will be the, uh, the last part of the evening before we open up to discussion, questions, comments, etc. So again, please sit comfortably, be relaxed and upright, and let your eyes gently close. And once again, feel the body in sitting. Notice that the body is, is really filled with awareness. That wherever you turn your attention, you can find yourself in the body. From the top of the head, through the abdomen, into the sitting base, 
and legs. Awareness can move to any of those points that you choose and notice what's there. So for one thing, we notice that there's a distance, a felt sense of distance between the top of the head and the feet. The body is a physical object located in space. And we can feel a gap, a space between the top of the head and the feet. So we feel the sense of space within the body. We can also feel a distance between the right arm and the left arm. Another sense of space. So as we let the attention move through the whole body, we see the whole body is located in space and that there's distance between all the different parts of it. We can feel that, this is not imaginary. This is the felt sense of the body. Now, as you explore this distance within the body from the top to bottom, from right to left, is the whole of the outline of the body jammed full of sensations? Or are there areas in the body where no sensations are apparent or felt? Is every cubic millimeter of the body chock full of sensation? Or do you actually find space within the body? You might say between the sensations, even within the sensations. Can you notice some empty space within the body? So you have a sense of the space within the body. And now, can you also get a sense of the space around the body? Perhaps where your skin is exposed, you feel the coolness of the air or the warmth of the air. air around the body, space around the body. If you like, you can open your eyes momentarily, take in the space in the room, and then close your eyes again and see if that sense of space stays a little bit, space around the body. So there's space within the body and space around the body. Are these two really different spaces or is there one space that you can feel holding the body, containing the body, as well as within the body? Can you get a sense of that one space that you feel both inside and beyond the body? Let yourself notice now that space, that one space. Bring your attention to it. 
and investigate a little bit. Does that space have an edge or a boundary? Or does it feel like it might go on and on? Well, if you're in a room, you might feel, oh, it stops at the wall. But if you were to open a window, then you might well have a sense, oh, that space keeps going on. Or a door, oh, that space keeps going on. If a door or window was open, would it really affect your felt sense of that space? Could it be that your felt sense of space really doesn't have an edge or a boundary? Could we say that you may be able to perceive a space that is boundless? In any case, I invite you to put your attention on that perception of space, however wide it seems to you. And make that the focus for your mindfulness. Let your focus be on that space for the remainder of this sitting, last couple of minutes. And then notice, how does it feel to have the attention on that perception of space? What is that like for you as a meditation focus? So if you couldn't quite hear, that was the meditation bell and signals the end of, end of that guided meditation. And I just wanna say that um, this is adapted from that discourse, Majjhima 121, that I mentioned, the, the lesser discourse on emptiness that the Buddha gave. And I find it, this perception of space, a very helpful focus because if I focus on the whole body, you know, that can be very pleasant. The body still has painful aspects and pleasurable aspects, which can easily lead to being involved in liking and disliking. When I move the attention to space, it doesn't have those pleasurable and painful aspects. And so I find that the mind is able to rest the attention there with greater equanimity. And yet there is a clear focus for the attention to land on. So in one more wrinkle, which we don't have time to go into tonight, 
you can inquire what is knowing that space and then put your attention on the knowing element. And this offers some of the same uh, beauty as the meditation on space, but that's for another exploration. Okay, that's really what I wanted to, to cover in the talk and the meditation this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.